Um, the national pastor we're working with, Masahiro Enomoto, Brother Evans is his best friend. That's how we have the connection to Enomoto Sensei. And he has a book where he's just got everything, every about five minutes of his day is planned out. I'll be honest, I don't have the sanity for that. And the reality is, though, that when we make our plans from our fallible perspectives, you know, there's a reason the military has that term that no, no plan survives contact with the enemy. is because from our perspective, we can't plan for everything. Our plans, is that me? It's, usually doesn't do that. Is that better? Okay. Um, but our plans... You know, they never seem to go quite the right way, do they? But Jesus Christ does not have that problem. We're going to be starting in uh, Luke 24, uh, verse 44. It says, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the, in the excuse me, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Now we see here in this first passage where it says, And he said unto, the, said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you. Now you can go to several different places in Scripture, but if you were to go back to Matthew chapter 16, it starts off talking about uh, the world's view. You know, that he asks them, Who does the world say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And he goes on and talks about um, the foundation of the church which is on Jesus Christ himself. And then he begins to tell them after that, he says, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again the third day. And that's when we get the, uh, Peter says, no, 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 that's not going to be. But he had already at that point been giving them and outlining exactly what was going to happen. Because it said that he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He was already telling them what was going to happen. In fact, it goes on in this passage and says that everything in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, that all of it must be fulfilled. Now, there's been some uh, smarter men than me that have crunched the numbers, and they say for Jesus Christ to fulfill just eight out of what are quite literally hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus was prophesied about the life of Jesus Christ, for him to fulfill just eight out of those hundreds the odds are one in 100 quadrillion. That's 100 million billions. Let me put it in a number that I can understand. It was impossible. For Jesus Christ to fulfill just eight out of hundreds, it was impossible. And yet there's not one that has failed. Every prophecy to this day today has been completed to the jot and the tittle. And it was all laid out before creation. Because if you go back to Genesis 1.1, you know what? Before he created the world, he already knew that Adam and Eve were going to rebel against him. He created them lacking nothing. 
And yet they still turn their back on their God. And it didn't catch them off guard. And as you go through the Old Testament, you go up to the uh, Noah and the ark, you know what? It didn't catch him off guard that mankind was going to become so wicked that he would have to send a flood and start over, basically. And you go through um, the time of Abraham and the time of Moses and on down all the way to the cross. You know, I call the time of Israel, I say it's like the roller coaster of Judah. It just seems like they have a good time where they're wanting to serve the Lord. They have everything they need. And yet, what do they do? Turn their backs on him. None of that caught him off guard. And when we see this passage here, when it talks about how he outlined it to them ahead of time, and how all of these prophecies, you know, I think we should probably take a step back and make this a little more personal. Because I've been guilty of this in my life where, you know, you read verses like John 3, 16, where it says, for God so loved the world. It's really easy to just kind of gloss over that. And, you know, the world to me is a number, 8 billion. I can't wrap my mind around it. I can't even wrap my mind really around 10,000 people. And yet for Jesus Christ, that's 8 billion individuals. You know what this verse here in Luke 24, 44 is saying? He came and he paid a price just for you. That if you were the only sinner who had ever sinned, he still would have done this. What that verse is saying is that Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, rearranged all of human history to lead to the cross. And if you were the only sinner that had ever sinned, he still would have done it. That's quite the statement, isn't it? Because our salvation, you know, his death on the cross was not the price for the whole world. That was the price to save Randy Brown. And we could go around this room. See, it's Brother Jack, isn't it? What's that? Jake. Brother Jake, if you were the only sinner who had ever sinned, Jesus Christ would die just for you. And anyone between me and him, I could say the same about you. That the price for our salvation is nothing less than Jesus Christ, God eternal, who cannot die, who came to this earth, became a man just like us, 100% man, 100% God, who lived a perfect sinless life. He was the only one who's ever lived who was able to live up to the law. All of us have failed. But he lived that perfect, sinless life, and he willingly went to the cross. You know, we actually had a conversation with a lady in Japan that she was wrapped up in one of the cults there, and Google Translate, like I said, was amazing. And in this conversation back and forth, she started off saying that, oh, Jesus didn't exist. And it's like, well, no, no scholars deny his existence. And then she said, oh, he's a weak God because he allowed himself to die on the cross. He allowed himself to be killed. It's like, no, he didn't. He laid his own life down. No man took it from him. He willingly went to the cross so that we could get saved. That was his plan. He planned from creation to the cross. And from creation to the cross, 
everything he put into his plan, it happened. Exactly like he wanted it to, exactly like he needed it to. To set up the opportunity that he could pay the price for Randy Brown so that I could get saved. And it says in verse 45, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. You know what? He took that responsibility on himself. That word behoove means it was a responsibility. It was a duty that he had to take because of his love. And because of that, we see here that he's going to give us a task. It says, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And we have it in other places in Matthew chapter 28 is the Great Commission. That responsibility to take the gospel everywhere that there's a person breathing. What that responsibility is, is nothing less than the weight of the entire world. You have the responsibility that anywhere that there's a soul created in the image of God, it is your job to get the gospel to them. And we see that in the next verse, why? It says, and ye are witnesses of these things. Anybody here alive 2,000 years ago and saw all the miracles that Jesus performed? Let's see. I have yet to have someone raise their hand to that. But I can confidently say that if you are in this room and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you have had that time in your life where you recognized your need as a sinner, that nothing you could do could save you. It was in His name alone, in His completed work on the cross, and it was a free gift. And you've had that time where you asked Him to be your Savior. You asked Him to forgive you and come into your heart. Can I tell you, you're a witness of these things. You have seen a miracle of God in your life. You have seen the full power of God in display because you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and now you're alive. That is why Jesus Christ is putting that responsibility, that weight of the entire world on our shoulders. And you know what? If we look at who he's talking to here, in this passage, this is shortly after the, the resurrection and shortly before the ascension. He's talking to Peter and the other apostles. And when you really look at them, you're not really going to say that they're the A-team. Because not long before this, Peter denied the Lord three times. If I go a little bit further, I mentioned Matthew chapter 16. In that very passage, Peter's told, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter was a zealous man for God. But quite often acted the fool, didn't he? Unless we give Peter too hard a time, where were the others? They were a bunch of cowards. Does that sound like who you would give responsibility to taking the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere it needs to go? No. You know what? That didn't catch God off guard. Look at the very next verse there in verse 49. It says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. He's saying, you need to wait. Because just as Peter and the other apostles in their own strength, they didn't have the strength to accomplish it, I'm going to lump myself in there. 
Me as Randy Brown, my shoulders are not broad enough to carry the weight of the world. I believe if you were to take the strength of this church, you know what? Your shoulders aren't broad enough. If you were to take the strength of all the gospel preaching Baptist churches in the entire world and put them together, we'd still fall far short, wouldn't we? You know what? The evidence is all around us, isn't it? Of how wicked our world is. And you know what? God has given a task that's beyond our ability. And he knew it. So we're going to be looking, uh, as we go through, we're going to turn over to Acts chapter 2. Because his plan didn't just stop at the cross. His plan continued forward. And we're going to be looking in Acts chapter 2 at what I call the first pillar. And that would be the leadership of the church. In Acts chapter 2 verse 1 it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And for time's sake, we won't continue. We'll jump later on to later in the chapter. But we have here the day of Pentecost. They did exactly what they were told. God said, look, I know you can't accomplish it in your strength, but I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send power because my shoulders are big enough. And I'm going to empower you through the Holy Spirit. And here we have the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And I'll be honest, I'm a little jealous because they had the easy button for languages. I'm going to have to study the hard way. Because these weren't incomprehensible languages. They were speaking in languages that people actually understood. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen what they're doing today, but it is definitely not what we see recorded here. And so the Holy Spirit moves upon them and they go out and they begin to preach. And men that fall short in almost every way begin to preach with a power and an authority that just astounds the world there. Look at it there when it says this, they're like marveling that behold are not all these which speak Galileans. Now I'm from a, a church in what is a, the rough part of town. It's called Oildale there in Bakersfield. Quite literally, Bakersfield city limits go around Oildale. They want nothing to do with Oildale. Um, I know Miss uh, Rachel, her, her dad started in ministry at my home church. I don't know if he's ever told you any stories about his time there in Oildale, uh, but it's pretty rough. And when people hear that, oh, your church is in Oildale, that's where our church is at. And they hear that, oh, you're from Oildale, they kind of look at you funny. They don't have very high expectations for someone from Oildale. And I'm sure around this nation, you can probably think of places like that. You know, I'll be honest, I actually get that when people hear I'm from California sometimes. <laughs> it's like, oh, one of those. But the truth is, is that they're looking at these men who in their own ability from their background, the world doesn't expect much from them. 
These are the lowest of the low in the world's perspective. And they go out and they begin to preach. And let's go uh, turn back into uh, verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words that he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And for time's sake, we'll stop there. But we see here in verse 37 that they go out and they preach. And to be honest, Pastor, I don't think that either one of us has ever preached to a crowd as hard-hearted as they did that day. Because quite literally, these were the people that not long before they went out and were preaching to them, these were the people that said, crucify him and sent Jesus to the cross. You know what? I'm not going to give them a hard time either because you know what? My sin sent him to the cross. But they preached to people who hated God, really, were God's enemies, who sent Jesus to the cross and it wasn't their words that pricked their hearts. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we saw how Peter and the other apostles in their own strength, they got scattered. And they preached with boldness. And the Lord used them. And can I say, we have the same Holy Spirit in us. We have the same power of God in us. And we see here, I said it was the first pillar we see the leadership of the church. There was a survey done in 1993 in America of evangelicals, so it wasn't just strictly Baptists. And they asked them a series of questions, and one of the questions they asked was, who has responsibility for carrying out the Great Commission? And in 1993, 10% of those surveyed said it's on the church and the pastor and the church staff. They basically said, I have no personal responsibility to tell other people about Jesus Christ. It's on the church. They did a follow-up survey 25 years later. And this is about 2017, 2018. Anybody want to take a guess? Did it get better or worse? 29%. Nearly one in three Christians in America today say that they have no personal responsibility for carrying out the Great Commission. They're going to put it all on the pastor and all on the church. Now, I'll be honest, I think if we were to go and poll just Baptists, that I think the numbers would be far better. But then if we were to look at our behavior, I don't think it would be too far off. The reality is most of us live like we have no personal responsibility. But in God's plan here, what we see here, uh, what the job of a pastor, it is not to do the work of the gospel for the church. A pastor does that because he's a good Christian first. The pastor's job as pastor is to equip the church. 
and to give direction to the church. And we see that here. What do they, what do, they do? They continue in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles had had three and a half years with Jesus Christ investing in them and training them and equipping them. And now it's their turn. And they go. The Lord allows them to see over 3,000 people get saved in one day. And then they begin to equip them. Because God's plan can't rest just on the shoulders of the pastor. We see that in America today. So many churches are putting more on the pastor than should be on him. You know, pastors like butter on toast. You can only spread it so far before it gets so thin, might as well not even be there. But God's plan, and let's turn over to Acts chapter 8. God's plan is for the church to do the bulk of the work of the gospel. And you know, Brother Taggett, it's just awesome that you're here. You're one of the best illustrations I have. <laughs> what is it? Acclaim Christian layman assisting international missionaries. Acts chapter 8, I could take you to many other places where we're given that responsibility, but I go here because it is quite clear that the apostles aren't in the picture. It says in verse 1, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. What's the last words there of verse 1? Except the apostles. The church had every reason as they're scattered under this persecution. The word we have for it today was Paul was trying to commit genocide against them. Every Christian that he could get his hands on, he wanted to get them, throw them in jail. And if they weren't going to repent, he was going to kill them. They already killed Stephen right before this. And they had every excuse as they're scattered without their leadership. You know what the worst persecution I've ever faced was? I remember giving the guy on a street evangelism a tract when I was in Bible college. And he opened it up and he kind of started reading it with me. And uh, he had, was there with some of his friends. And then he laughed in my face, tore it up and threw it in my face. Woe is me. That's not persecution really, is it? But that's the worst response I've ever encountered. They had someone that wanted to toss them in jail and kill them. They had every excuse, humanly speaking, to just go like this and keep their heads down as they went everywhere. And yet, what's that word there? I had always read this wrong. I had kind of read it as they went everywhere in spite of the persecution. But we have that word, therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. This wasn't the preachers filling the pulpit. This was the laymen sitting in the pews that went everywhere they went with every excuse you could imagine, far better than any we would have. 
And yet they went everywhere preaching the word. You know what that is? That's just telling people who Jesus Christ is and what he did for you. If you know Jesus Christ as your savior today, can I tell you, you know everything you need to tell someone about him. Just tell what Jesus did in your life. You know, I said, you mentioned last night how all the missionaries we've ever seen that has come up, every missionary I've talked to has a completely unique testimony. Can I tell you, each and every person in this room has a completely unique testimony because God is seeking you. When I look back on my life before I got saved, I can see God's hand all over it, even when I was a lost, wicked sinner. I can see God leading my family away from the Jehovah's Witnesses and on and on. He was seeking me. Tell that story. You know, and this is a church that there are so many opportunities. Y'all just got this wonderful building. Pastor was, walked us around and showing us this and showing us that. Told us the story of how y'all got in here. That is absolutely amazing what the Lord has done here. And you know what? God just gave you all room to grow. But if it's all on pastor and the church staff, will that room get filled? God's plan is for the church to get involved. Now, a church doesn't get to be like this one without a large percentage of the people having a passion to be involved. But can you honestly say that it's 100%? Are there those that are sitting on the sidelines? Really, the church is the number one pillar in God's plan. The pastor... He's there for leadership. He's there for direction. He's there to equip so that you can serve the Lord in your life. But God also knows that we're limited, aren't we? Let's go to Acts chapter 13 because there's a third pillar in God's plan. And that's the missionary. Because God knows we can only be in one place at one time, can't we? But he gave us a task that requires us literally to fulfill the task that God's given us. If we wanted to do it all ourselves, it would require us to go everywhere all the time. We're not that big, are we? And you know what? It didn't catch God off guard that Adam and Eve sinned. It didn't catch him off guard on down the line through the Old Testament. And it didn't catch him off guard that the apostles were limited. And it didn't catch him off guard that we are limited where we can be. And so in Acts chapter 13, we have the calling out of Barnabas and Saul from the church there. It says in verse 1, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. We see here five men mentioned. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, 
Manaean, and Saul. And out of these five men, three are left behind because God recognizes he still wants the gospel to reach Antioch. And two are sent forward, Barnabas and Saul. Now, I always grew up hearing missionaries talk about their call. But it wasn't until after God called us from our home church that this passage became a little clearer for me. Because I had always read, this was another one of those passages where I'd be honest, I read it wrong. And we see here that he is not talking to Barnabas and Saul, is he? Who's he talking to there in verse 2? All of them. He's talking to the church. You know, because Saul was called earlier on in his ministry. Right after he was saved, he was told that he was going to be a, a light to the Gentiles. God had a plan for him. Yet it was many years later before he was sent out from Antioch. And I got to see that play out in my own life. I was saved when I was, four, or saved when I was 11. God brought me to a wonderful church. I'll talk a little bit about how the Lord did that um, in our testimony on Wednesday night. And when I was 14, I surrendered to preach. And at that time, I felt that God wanted me to be a missionary to either Germany or Japan. The Lord used my interest in it. And the Lord, over the next 25 years, the Lord sent me a wife who, whose dad grew up in Japan. Her grandparents were missionaries there for over 30 years. And so she grew up loving Japan more than I ever did. But apparently I forgot to tell her that God called me to go to Japan as a missionary. Because I thought God put it on hold. So I went to Heartland as a pastoral major, and I meet Esther, we get married, and I graduate in 2015. The Lord leads me back to my home church to serve through a pastoral transition. And in September of 2020, we had a visiting missionary, uh, Brother Larry Taylor. To be honest, I don't even remember what he preached but when he was preaching that night, the Lord said to my heart, now's the time to go to Japan. And so I went home that night and I said, hey, honey, I think God wants, to go to, wants us to go to Japan as missionaries. And she looked at me a little confused and she said, I'm willing to go, but where's this coming from? I said, oh, well, you know, when I was a teenager and I surrendered, you know, that story. And she's like, you've never told me. We'd only been married 10 years at that point. Young people, don't make my mistake. <laughs> but God had a time. And so we began to pray, and it didn't match up with our plans necessarily. Um, we had, had Pastor Sears was retiring after 46 years in the pulpit. Um, and it was going to be, the transition was in March. We had a one-year transition to our new pastor, Eddie Walker. And he, me and him had plans. I was going to be his assistant pastor. I was going to be going into full-time service at the church there. I was bivocational, selling lumber and serving in the church. And I was going to be the principal of the Christian school that the Lord used in my life that I graduated from. And so we had all these wonderful plans, and I was excited. And then God says, nope, time to go to Japan. And so I kind of laid my fleece out, and I, I told my pastor, and God was kind of already leading his heart in the same direction that we would be leaving instead of staying. And neither one of us wanted us to see us go. Pastor Walker is a dear, dear friend of mine. And I was looking forward to getting to minister with him there in Bakersfield with people that I love dearly. I love my church family. 
But I laid my fleece out and I said, Pastor, we're praying for God's direction. A week after he was officially called as pastor, I went into his office and I, I said, Pastor, this is what we've been praying about, praying about planting a church in California. Can I tell you, that is greatly needed. If you were to go two to 300 miles, maybe even just 100 miles from where we're standing right now, you will find more King James gospel preaching Baptist churches than in all of California. Probably three to four times as many. So the needs there is great, and that's my heart. Part of my heart is in California. And I say we're also praying about maybe seeking a pastorate or going to Japan as a missionary. And his exact words to me was, when you said go to Japan as a missionary, he said, my heart leapt. And so we prayed about it more earnestly. And do you know Brother uh, David Harris? He's the Far East Director with BIMI. Um, wouldn't you know it, Pastor Walker had already scheduled before I talked to him, Brother Harris, to be the keynote speaker at our missions conference that April. Brother Harris had spent 25 years in Japan as a missionary. Surprise. And one of the families attending the conference was uh, Brother Brendan and Kareen Morgan. We were one of their first conferences as they were starting out on deputation to go to Japan. They just got there this past March. And so you can imagine Japan came up a lot that week. And the first night, Brother Harris is preaching upstairs. Brother Morgan is downstairs teaching the kids. And Brother Harris begins to go into all the difficult things about Japan, how difficult the language is, how stubborn the people are, and on and on and on down the list he went. And he says, and don't tell those missionaries downstairs, you'll discourage them. And I'm sitting in the audience going, what about me? I went up and I gave him a hard time afterwards, said, hey, Brother Harris, you never know who's in the audience. My wife and I have been praying about going to Japan for six months. And over that week, Japan, Japan, Japan. And that Sunday, I turned to my wife and I said, honey, it's not just a burden, it's a call. This is God's call on our life. Me and her went into the pastor's office that afternoon. And after a month of praying, praying specifically about that, he said, if you came in my office and told me anything but missions to Japan, even if it was to another field, I'd tell you you're wrong. And when we presented it to the church and the church voted on it that night, whether they were going to send us or not, can I tell you, we got to see this passage in Acts chapter 13 play out. Because God called me at 14, but I don't stand before you as Randy Brown. I stand before you as a representative first of Jesus Christ. And second, of First Bible Baptist Church and our supporting churches. I'm a deputy of First Bible Baptist. Sent out on a specific mission to take the gospel to the people of Japan. I don't know if you all have a crazy church aunt. I can think of a few candidates just off the top of my head that we've met so far. Um, if you don't have one, you should find one. My church, somebody's naming names. There's always someone that does that. But our church has Miss Brenda, and I love Miss Brenda to death. She's kooky, she's wacky. And Miss Brenda came up to me after that, and I'll be honest, I can't talk about this without getting a little emotional. Miss Brenda came up to me after I put her arm around me, and she said, Brother Randy, you're my missionary. That's who I represent. I'm not here in my own authority. 
the missionaries you see, the missionaries you support, they're not going on their own authority. They represent you going to the four corners of the world, doing exactly what is being done here somewhere else. Because God's plan is for the pastors and the church staff to give leadership, to give direction, to equip the saints, for the church to do the bulk of the gospel work right here, here in Eaton, Ohio, one of the two Eaton, Ohio's. And he's called the missionaries to go on your behalf to the places you can't to preach the gospel there in your place. And can I tell you, it works. Unlike our plans, God's plan works. And the evidence is right here, right now. Because when Paul left Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, what did they do? They went and planted churches. And what did those churches do? They sent out men that planted churches, that sent out men that planted churches, that sent out men that planted churches. And on for 2,000 years now, God's plan for the New Testament has worked exactly as he intended it. And people all across this world are getting saved in churches just like this. The question is whether you're going to be faithful. Because did you hear there's no fourth pillar? There's no job, no role in God's plan for just a bench warmer, for a pew filler. You're either in God's plan as a pastor or on church staff, as a faithful layman involved in the work of the gospel, and there's so many different ways you can get involved. Like I said, Brother Tacky, you're a perfect example of that. God has given you a gift to just use your hands. And he's directed you in a way to use it. And multiplied it, hasn't he? He takes our small investments and he multiplies it in a way that only he can. And there's Sunday school classes. There's work projects, I'm sure. Your pastor has a vision. You can get involved if you want. Because I'm going to go out on a limb, Pastor. If someone came to you and said, hey, I want to get involved, are you going to find something for them? From the pastor's mouth. Or you're a missionary. God's plan works. This church is the evidence it works. Are you going to be faithful to God's plan? As the pianist comes, let's close in prayer and let's all stand. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to lift you up tonight, Lord. I just pray that you'd continue to work here in Eden. Lord, that you, your name would be glorified. That if there are any here, Lord, who have been on the sidelines, Lord, that they would come and surrender to get involved you have a plan just for them. You have something already in mind for them and you want to use them, Lord. Just pray that you'd be with them. If there's those who are working and they're struggling hard, Lord, just pray that you'd be an encouragement to them as they're fulfilling their part in your plan for the betterment of the gospel, Lord, for the advancement of the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.